So one of the things that um, we raised then was this realisation that um, refugees did not choose to leave their home. Because we noticed that um, for many of them, they, they, well, some of them, they just didn't seem to um, want to assimilate into our culture. They, it, they, the effort to learn the language was too hard. The effort to adapt to new foods, they didn't like anything that came in a tin, and so they just turn it down. And, and so what's with that? It, it, was, it was a realisation that they never chose this. It was taken from them. They had to run for their lives. And we, we saw that this, this lack of desire to change was not about them being stubborn. It was more about the fact that their life had been taken from them and they wanted it back. Something precious to them was gone. It was taken from them. And I wonder how you would feel in that situation. What would you miss about your life here if it was suddenly taken from you? What would you take with you to remind yourself of your life right now? What would you have to leave behind? What if you had to run so suddenly that you couldn't even grab your children because some of them were in that boat? You see, suffering always involves something being taken from you. Your home, your freedom if you're put in prison, Ultimately, many Christians around the world have had their lives taken from them. Suffering always involves losing something precious. And for the people that Peter was writing to, they were most likely living under the rule of the Emperor Nero, one of the most sadistic, deranged, vindictive rulers that I can think of. Nero turned society against Christians by blaming them for the fire that burned down their homes. He threw Christians to the lions during gladiator matches so that the crowds would cheer their deaths. He set them alight as human torches to light up his garden parties. The Christians that Peter was writing to knew all about suffering because so much was taken from them. And so Peter begins his letter with this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. In the face of so much being taken from them, Peter reminded them that they have hope. Their inheritance can never be taken from them. It will never perish. It will never spoil. It will never fade. The New Living Translation describes it as an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. It won't go rotten waiting for us to get there. It's an inheritance that's protected by God himself. Nero cannot get his hands on this or take it away. No one can do anything to take it away because God's got it. Even Satan can't take it away. And Jesus demonstrated that when Satan tried to take his life. We're reminded in verse 3 that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead and through that resurrection we have living proof that Satan is powerless to do anything that God doesn't want him to do. 
Jesus went willingly to the cross and he gave his life into Satan's hands, knowing that he had the power and the authority to take it back any moment that he chose. Jesus didn't get a sucker punch from Satan. Satan played right into his hands. And Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 2 verse 9, destroy this temple, meaning his body, and I'll raise it up again in three days. And he did exactly that, didn't he? Proof that even Satan cannot take his life. Peter's point is that God is the one guarding our inheritance so no one is able to take it away from us. Regardless of how things look, the inheritance that we've been promised is signed, sealed and set for delivery right on time. And on top of that, Peter wrote that we're also under the powerful protection of that very same God. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you and you through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation is ready to be revealed at the last time. That is the promise of salvation, people. God has given us new birth into a living hope. Technically, our earthly life is dead and buried. We died with Christ when we were saved and regenerated with a new life that cannot be taken from us. Because that new life is shielded by God himself. The proof that God can do this is also seen in the resurrection of Jesus. There's nothing any human can do to, take, to you to take your new life away from you. Peter's saying to these people, and I am saying to you today, that if you've become a citizen of heaven through faith in Jesus Christ, your eternity is safe and secure in the care of the God who made you and nothing can take that away from you. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2 verses 8 to 9, it's by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. We did not do anything to earn our inheritance. It's a gift that God gave knowing who we are and all that we've done and everything we're still going to do. That means there's nothing that we can do to lose our inheritance because we didn't get it on the basis of who we are. We got it on the basis of who God is. Our inheritance is based on who God is. And again, in Romans 8, 38 to 39, Paul wrote that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor future nor powers, neither height nor depth, anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's no one more powerful than God. And so nothing can take away from you what God wants you to have. When God promises he will love you, there is nothing and no one that can change his mind about that. No one can steal our inheritance out of God's hands and no one can keep us from getting at it because God's got us. We are loved and protected beyond measure and we have a future eternal inheritance that's guaranteed. Now, it's into that context 
that Peter brings a, a discussion about persecution. He wrote in verse 6, In all this you greatly rejoice, though for now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief of all kinds of trials. To people who live in fear of their lives, as many Christians continue to do around the world today, Peter wrote that they can still feel secure because the inheritance that awaits them far outweighs anything that's been taken from them here. And the same goes for you and me today. Everything we experience in this world must be considered through this lens. What is eternal lasts. And so that is what matters. The things of this world are here for a time and then they're gone. Stay focused on the inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ, the one that lasts. And to help them further, Peter began to open up some of the reasons why God was allowing them to be persecuted. Have you ever wondered why God allows people to suffer? Have, what is the purpose of all the pain and the hardship that we go through? Why would a good God sit back and allow people who he's supposed to love go through things that are so hard and unfair? And so Peter doesn't just shrug his shoulders and say, well, we're all living in a fallen world, so what are you going to do? Rather, he points to the fact that God has a purpose for their suffering. As Paul wrote in Romans 8.28, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God is good and he is always working to make us more like Jesus, no matter how hard that might feel for us at the time. Peter points to two key truths about suffering and persecution. Firstly, in verse 7, Peter wrote about the process of refining gold through fire. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. The implication is that their moments of suffering came with the knowledge of God. He knows and has a reason why they have come. They were allowed to come because he didn't intervene to stop them. And he did that because he sees a greater purpose that will be achieved when we get to the other side of that suffering. That purpose is to prove the genuine nature of our faith. Now, if God knows the human heart better than we know ourselves, right? The testing of our faith is not for God's benefit so that he can check on who's genuine and real and who's not. He knows, which is why in the parable of the goats and the sheep, Jesus said that the goats, the ones who've sat in church all their lives and done all the things that make them look like they're Christians, when they get there, they're going to hear the words, depart from me for I never knew you. Even though they'd done all of these things, they still weren't in relationship with him. And he knows. He knows their heart. Proving our faith is not for God's benefit. It's for ours. To make gold pure, you have to get rid of everything that's in it, that's mixed through it, that's not gold. 
And when you do that, its value increases. It becomes more precious. And the way to do that is you put it in a furnace so that bit by bit, everything that's not gold, everything that's impure, catches light and is burned away. And it leaves just the gold. You go through that process with gold and you have something that's very, very valuable. Each time we pass through the fires of persecution, a little bit more of the trust that we place in ourselves catches fire and is burned up as we realise that we don't have this. What happens is that our faith is made more pure because we are forced to lean on God. We are forced to understand that the only one who can save us is him. Each time we come to the end of ourselves, we have the opportunity to learn to trust God more. The purpose of persecution and suffering is to make us run to God so that we lean on him and not on ourselves. We need to know that we can't save ourselves. We need to know that we can only be saved by him and we have to learn to trust him to do that for us. Without passing through the fire of the furnace, the gold isn't as valuable because it isn't as pure. It must go through the fire. Extinguishing the fire to avoid the heat means that the gold does not increase in value. The gold has to endure the flames. It has to sit tight and wait for the flames to pass in order for it to increase in value by becoming more pure. The same goes for us. Peter's saying that rather than fighting to avoid persecution, we should allow it to do its job in us, not to go looking for trouble. It's not like we work to bring persecution on ourselves, but we need to know that it has a purpose when it comes. Its job is to make us more like Christ, and it does that by forcing us to lean on him. The more we lean on him the more we learn about him. Being saved from the fire is how we get to know who Jesus really is because he is a God who saves. And that's Peter's second point. The Christian who endures persecution and suffering well brings glory to God. In verse 7, we read that suffering well brings praise, glory and honour to God. You see, the life of a disciple should reflect the life of the person they follow. The life of a Christian must reflect the life of Christ. And the bad news for us is that the life of Christ was full of suffering and persecution. Peter's raised the issue of persecution right at the beginning of his letter, not just because the people he wrote to were having a hard time, but because this is actually a normal part of the Christian life. Peter's, the fact that much of the Western world seems to have been relatively free of persecution for the past few hundred years is really actually abnormal. It came as a result of our countries being founded by people who saw the value of the Bible as their foundation. But now we're moving into a period of history where there's a corrective swing taking place and the world around us is reverting to the normal pattern of persecuting Christians. 
Christians in many other countries have not been missing out on persecution while we've been sitting here safe. When we think about the lives of refugees that come to Australia, many of them have fled for their lives from countries where they were not safe. It's only the countries with a Christian foundation at their roots in their past that have allowed Christians complete freedom. The lives that we've known, free from persecution, are the abnormality, not theirs. Because the life of a Christian should look like the life of Christ. And it's because we've been living in a society free from persecution that there's, it's resulted in a malaise and an apathy in the church, in the Western church. Because suffering and persecution are a normal part of the Christian experience for good reason. Because the life of the Christian without it actually becomes weaker and deficient. It becomes stunted. God is not a helicopter parent. He loves us too much to step in too early and remove every obstacle that comes our way. He waits right beside us, keeping us safe, but allowing us to face the hardships that we need to face in order to grow stronger and to learn more about him. Peter then points to the prophets of the past who trusted in the character of God to do something to save them without being able to see what that something was. They wished they could be part of what we are going through right now. But it wasn't. It, it just wasn't the right time. They serve us by going through what they went through and writing about it. All they could do was trust in what God was doing and to obediently live out the life that he had called them to live. And in doing so, that's how they served us. Even the angels, though, even the angels look on at what we are going through and wish that they could be a part of it because they can see how significant this is. They can see how it brings glory to God and it fulfills the purpose of our creation. Being a Christian today is a privilege and we need to remember that. Rather than lamenting how hard life is or living in fear of what lays ahead, I believe that we need to accept that we are going to be persecuted and we need to trust God's promise to get us through so that we focus on living in a manner that brings glory to him. Now, I'm not talking about giving up. We're called to be light in the world and to reveal Jesus, but we're also called to be salt and to preserve we do need to be actively engaged in slowing down the process of decay in society. But let's not get sucked into feeling sorry for ourselves because the world's turning against us. Let's not get sucked into going, getting all panicky and fearful because life's unfair. Let's not listen to the voice of Satan who wants us to demonstrate to the world that Jesus cannot be trusted. Let's make up our minds that we're going to remain calm and not change what we believe about God, no matter how much we are persecuted for it. Let's make the decision that we are going to respond to unfair accusations and undeserved punishment in the same way as Jesus did in the lead up to the cross, with grace. 
Let's make the decision to show the world that we trust God so completely to protect our future inheritance and that we trust him to resurrect us just the same way as what he did Jesus. Let's make the decision that we're going to bring glory to God in the way that we face whatever is coming. Amen? Yeah. So here are just a couple of practical considerations and we're nearly done. When people go through difficult times, they get stressed. That's human nature. And I have been here long enough to know that you respond to stress the same way that I do. We tend to turn on each other. People often turn on each other and say things to hurt each other. And we must not allow that to happen. Because that's how Satan gets into our relationships and causes division. It's how he works to tarnish the reputation of God in the world. And when Christians behave badly, they don't just treat each other, uh, when they don't treat each other with love, it's disastrous for the mission that God has given us to do. Jesus said that the world will know whose disciples we are by the way that we love each other, because that's how Jesus responded to persecution. He heard the mocking and he felt the blows as he hung on that cross and yet he still cried out, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Don't let persecution change the way you treat the people around you. But you might say, well, that's all well and good, but we are not Jesus. The people around you are always going to fail in this area. Because they are stressed human beings. And so when that happens, again, we respond with grace. When someone who's trying to live like Jesus slips up and hurts us, we can still cry out, Father, forgive them, because they've got a lot on their plate and they're not thinking clearly. Not only is this beautifully powerful, but in the process we become more like Jesus. And there'll still be times when people hurt us and there'll be times when that hurt is very serious. So I want to be clear that I'm not talking about sweeping things under the carpet and not dealing with them. I'm not talking about doing nothing when serious abuse uh, happens or when staying in situations are physically dangerous. If that's where you find yourself, something must be done about that and you need to get help. Do not stay in circumstances that put you at risk. Get help straight away. That's why the refugees had to flee. I'm talking about the kind of persecution that we're starting to face because of the conflict between God's kingdom and the world. I'm talking about the opposition that's growing because we're Christians. Opposition to the gospel is a normal part of Christian life. So remember that God's got you. How we deal with persecution and how we love each other through it is a huge, huge opportunity to bring glory to God and to show the world who Jesus is. Let's pray. Father, it's easy for us to take our eyes off you, off your son, and to look at the waves around us. And we know that we will sink if we do. Help us, Father, to face whatever comes our way 
together, united with the body of Christ and trusting in the fact that you have us safe and secure with a, with a guaranteed inheritance to come. And that is what we live for. In Jesus' name, amen.